Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. My name is Dan Maltrip. I'm chief executive here and a proud member. Today is October 23rd. Today is the day of the City Club's annual meeting. And as we do, we're presenting a forum on free speech. And as we have since the pandemic hit Ohio, we're live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. They are our public media partner, and we're very grateful for their partnership. These are challenging times for our nation's First Amendment and our commitment as a people to the idea of freedom of speech. We love it, we cherish it, and yet we live in an era where digital platforms have given purveyors of hate speech a larger audience than they ever might have acquired before. We live in an era characterized by phrases like no platforming and cancel culture, shorthand for the impulse to censor speech we don't wish to hear. Do you remember the idea made popular by Biographer of Voltaire, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. it. Seems almost quaint. But freedom of speech is not dead, and it found a new champion in Suzanne Nossel's new book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Suzanne Nossel is the CEO of PEN America, a 98-year-old organization that works at the intersection of literature, human rights, and freedom of expression in the U.S. and around the world. She worked in two White House administrations representing U.S. interests to the United Nations and has also worked with both Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, as well as in the private sector with McKinsey, Bertelsmann, and Dow Jones. Suzanne Nossel is our City Club annual meeting keynote speaker. We're delighted to have her with us today. And as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Just text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794 to text your questions. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them into the second half of the program. Suzanne Nossel, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It is so good to have you with us, and uh, congratulations on the book. It is, uh, you know, just when you think there's uh, everything that needs to be said about freedom of speech has been said, you come and say a whole lot of new things about it, um, which I suppose is a, in many ways a response to these times. How is free speech doing? How is free speech doing? It's under threat. Look, it's been a very challenging few years on multiple fronts. You know, I think for all of us right now, we're living in an information ecosystem that is flooded with disinformation, where it is hard to sort fact from falsehood. You don't know when you come across information or postings on social media who's really behind them. Disclosures are reported in major papers you, know, you have today the wall street journal editorial page reporting about one thing and the news side saying that's not credible so we're in uncharted waters unprecedented times when it comes to free speech with that threat of disinformation this kind of wild west on social media where we really have no rules in terms of how we want platforms to be moderating speech and we see the harms of online speech running rampant, uh, weaponized in this era, and yet also, I think, very well-founded reservations about having the likes of Twitter 
and Facebook exercise unfettered, non-transparent controls over these vast swaths of public discourse for which they account. Yeah, we also have a president who has been hell-bent on going after his critics with threats, with intimidation, with, in some cases, acts of retaliation against journalists and media organizations, and with a, a systematic campaign to discredit credible journalism in the eyes of his supporters to the point where you know, anything virtually that is brought forward on a platform like the Washington Post or the New York Times or CNN, you know, he can dismiss on the basis that this is just the liberal media run amok. And so those who follow him shouldn't credit it uh, and shouldn't believe it. And so, you know, that, that's just the top of the list. You know, we also have, and I deal with in the book, threats to free speech coming from the left, the censoriousness on college campuses, a kind of rigid orthodoxy that is setting in in certain circles where even questioning ideas like defund the police can get you into hot water uh, if you're a professor and your students think that you've uh, departed from what they believe uh, and, and question your ideology or your opinion. So I think we're at a kind of delicate moment when it comes to free speech, which is why I wanted to write a book sort of setting this out and trying to rally a, a, a what I hope will be a force of free speech defenders for the decades to come. I feel like it's important to let our listeners and our audience know that you are essentially an optimist about the future of free speech, but you, your book lays out the really important work that is required. And I want to just sort of highlight the, the way that you do this in the book in grouping these, you, you lay out 20 principles for, um, to guide this work, and you group them in, into four categories, principles for speaking, principles for listening, principles for debating free speech, and principles to keep in mind when you are creating free speech-related policies. Um, let's just talk about, about speaking first, if we could. Um, what, what are the, the principles that you think are most important when we are exercising our First Amendment rights? Yeah, sure. You know, the principle I start with is the idea of conscientiousness with language. And I should say, you know, one of my premises in wanting to write this book was a concern that we were in danger, we are in danger of losing a rising generation to the principle of free speech because people see it as at odds with the goals of bringing about a more equal, inclusive, and just society. And we know that this young generation you know, absolutely rightly is pushing us forward to address lingering, stubborn barriers to equality, systemic racism. And in so doing, at times, that movement can cross over into a kind of censoriousness, uh, a, a feeling that hateful speech, noxious speech, offensive sh speech should be banned or punished, and that the only way to realize this more equal society is going to be by putting restrictions on speech. And that's something that I disagree with, but I do think we have to set out some parameters to govern and, and kind of guide free speech so that it can work for our diverse, digitized and divided society. And so that's my kind of starting premise. And, and when it comes to speakers, the principle I begin with is the idea of using language conscientiously. And that encompasses a presumption of heterodoxy. So an assumption that if I'm speaking to this group, I can't see everybody out there in the audience. I don't really know who exactly is tuning in. 
And I should assume it includes people of all kinds of different backgrounds, races, religious beliefs, ideologies, political opinions. And if I keep that in mind, I will frame my ideas, my arguments, my points in an effort to appeal to everybody and to take into account some of the sensitivities that may come from that diverse audience in a way that I wouldn't do if I was just speaking to a bunch of friends who I knew well, where I could be edgier, I might make certain jokes, uh, and I'd have a different approach to speaking in, in that kind of closed environment. Another principle I set out is being your own editor. You know, back in the day, if you were publishing something, it would go through layers of review, an editor, a copy editor. Now, if you're posting on social media, you know, all that's been swept away. And so the responsibility really falls to us to give our words a reread, to think through how they might come across. If it's something sensitive, maybe show it to a friend and see what their reaction is. Uh, to be cognizant of terminology. You know, one thing I talk about is uh, non-binary gender pronouns, which to some people sort of sound a little unusual. It's not something that they're accustomed to, you know, but why it is that to speak conscientiously in 2020, it's important to call people by the pronouns by which they choose to be known. And that really it's just an, an act of respect rather than doing uh, ravages to uh, our language, which is what some people have argued. You know, so that, that's the, my starting premise, and then I have uh, several more when it comes to speaking. The book is called Defending, or pardon me, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. The author is Suzanne Nossel. She's CEO of PEN America, and she is our keynote speaker for our annual meeting. Um, and Suzanne, I want to talk to you about the, in the second area that you identify, principles for listening, you, you say we should call out with caution. Um, calling calling out has become a, a it's a function of or an activity on social media in in some respects. But what do you mean when you say call out with caution? Yeah, look, I think call outs have their place, but that they can also have a chilling effect on our discourse. And you know we see that in cases where, you know, for example, a professor, uses a, a word in class that some students consider offensive and then is the subject of petitions and boycotts and campaigns to get that person fired. We see it with editors who publish uh, op-eds or articles that some object to, and then they call for the dismissal of the editor. And you know that can only strike fear in the hearts of every other editor who has to think twice about whether to take a risk and it sort of narrows the parameters of what you can say and publish. And so what I advocate, I do think call-outs uh, have their place, but I also encourage people to consider the viability of doing what I call calling in. So raising the concern about offensive speech privately. And I give criteria for when I think that can work. When you think it was in uh, unintentional, you don't think this person is deliberately trying to offend. When you think it hasn't yet had a uh, irreversible harmful impact on others. Maybe it's a tweet that only a few people have seen, and if you could call the person's attention to it, you know they can delete it or edit it uh, uh, to avoid that potential harmful impact. If you think they're going to be responsive, if they might actually uh, be receptive to th this case that what they're saying is out of bounds, that it's noxious, that uh, somebody may be 
hurt by it. Those are reasons to call out and circumstances un under which you can call out. Also, when you know, if you have a trusted relationship with the individual, sorry, to call in. Calling out, I think, is warranted where something has happened very publicly, where uh, you know it, it's it's somebody with a wide following, and you know people. I give the example of Barry Weiss uh, tweeting out about the skater Marie Nagasu, uh, who, when she landed a, a quadruple axel and was the first Olympic skater to do so. Barry Weiss, uh, the former New York Times columnist, tweeted out, "Immigrants, they get the job done." That line from. Hamilton, and of course, Mariah Nagasu is not an immigrant. She's born here in the United States. And so the, the tweet was seen as sort of othering Nagasu. And so this idea that if you're of Asian American extraction, you know, you're not quite an American or you must be a newcomer here. And it was offensive to people. And I think it was right that she was called out. But I also think there is a, you know, in that instance, she was trying to make a compliment. It was sort of a ham handed compliment. Uh, but Chrissy Teigen, uh, I thought, kind of had it right in her response to Barry Weiss by saying, look, this is not a five alarm fire. You, know, you said something that could have offended people, uh, you know, and you need to be aware of that and you should apologize. But, you know, we're not saying that you're the face of evil. And that often that measuredness is what often gets lost. People are subject to death threats and it quickly can escalate out of control. And I think that's the dark side of call outs. Well, and I think the call outs and, and you really point to this and, and and articulate a lot of this in the book, but that it gets to that tension in when we talk about freedom of speech, whose speech is, you know, the, the speech of the individual versus the and what happens with call outs and when it becomes a, a what's sometimes referred to as a social media mob. There's um, that's a large group of people exercising their First Amendment rights, their freedom of speech as well. And those two things wind up in conflict with one another and also ultimately can end in or can point to unproductive outcomes. I think it's a very important point because, look, we always say free speech defenders kind of always say the best response to hurtful or uh, incendiary speech is often counter speech. So just somebody coming in and rebutting it and making the opposite argument and being more persuasive because you know, the hateful ideas will fall of their own weight if they're just subject to uh, fierce refutation. And I think that principle is true, but it does become occluded in our social media age where that counter speech can become so thunderous, so overwhelming, you know, such a, an avalanche that, you know, everybody who's watching the instance just think the incident just thinks, you know, my gosh, I have to back off, you know, I don't even want to talk about a topic like whether it's rape or abortion or immigrants' rights or uh, policing reform or anything controversial because the risk is exactly what you say. Not that, you know, I'll hear from a few people in the a polite exchange in. Uh, a newspaper letters to the editor column, which is how it used to happen 30 years ago, uh, but rather that I'm going to be, you know, made a spectacle of on social media. And, you know, I may be doxxed. I may have my personal information revealed. I may be uh, subject to, to physical threats. And so that counter speech, and you know, some of it crosses the line, but even where, you know, people are simply expressing an opposing opinion, when it coalesces, uh, you know, at that degree of volume, it can have a very intimidating effect. And so it's just something we have to be 
aware of in our discourse. It doesn't make counter speech wrong. I think it still can be incredibly effective, but it also can have a, a, a kind of paradoxically censorious result. Counter speech is sort of one consequence of exercising one's freedom of speech, um, being exposed to counter speech and being exposed to other points of view. Um, another consequence, particularly when the speech being exercised uh, is um, borders on hate speech or is in fact hate speech, that then you know you start you begin to enter criminal territory. And there was a there's a, a case, an Ohio case that you refer to in your book in the chapter about hate speech in which um, there was a, an arrest. James Reardon was arrested in Youngstown in the Mahoning Valley. And um, U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Ohio, Justin Herdman, delivered a message to white supremacists. And I want to read the, the part that you quote, if that's all right. He said, the Constitution protects your right to speak. If you want to waste the blessings of liberty by going down a path of hatred and failed ideologies, that is your choice. Democracy also, democracy allows you to test those ideas in the public forum. What you don't have, though, is the right to take out your frustration at failure in the political arena by resorting to violence. You don't have any right to threaten the lives and well-being of our neighbors. Um, it was a really, it, it was a strong defense uh, of the First Amendment, but also a strong defense of contextualizing the First Amendment and saying it it is important, but it has its place. Yeah, what I thought was really important about that statement was that if we are going to, in this country, protect our very robust safeguards for even hateful speech, our population, the public, needs to have faith that that doesn't mean that hatred and supremacist ideologies are simply going to be allowed to run freely throughout to society. Uh, you know, with all of their harmful impact on the groups that they target. And I think that's something that, you know, over the last few years, there has been sent, uh, this sense that hate, hatefulness has been uncorked. It's been legitimized by the president of the United States. It's been out on our streets. I mean, we were just talking, you know, before this call about sort of these very public demonstrations of bigotry that have been emboldened over the last few years. And quite understandably, in response to this, you know, there are intensifying calls to regulate, ban, punish, and shut down hateful speech out of a sense of almost desperation. Look, we can't have our children growing up in this kind of environment. And so we've got to do something, you know, let's crack down as a legal matter. And I think what Herndon did so artfully is say, Look, we absolutely uh, take this kind of venom seriously, and you know we're going to stop at nothing to uh, prosecute these people and find them wherever they are. They can't hide from us. But you know, we're what we're not going to do is cut back on the free speech protections that all of us enjoy. We don't need to do that in order to tackle uh, the problem of white supremacy head on and vanquish it. And I think that's an extremely important message. And people have to have that faith that we are going to be able to surmount this swelling tide of right supremacy, or else I really think our free speech protections are going to be in danger because people will demand a resort to uh, the narrowing of the parameters of free speech if they think that's what it's going to take to put a lid on this. So other nations, other democracies have limitations on freedom of speech, stronger limitations than than we have in America. Um, I guess, why are they wrong and we right? 
look, you're right. I mean, we have the most protective standard for free speech virtually in the world under the First Amendment. In Europe and in Canada, they have much broader latitude, for example, to prosecute incitement to discrimination or racial hatred, whereas in this country, you can only prosecute incitement to imminent violence. So it's only, it's you can't prosecute me for telling a bunch of people that they ought to uh, hate women or uh, demean minorities or ridicule a particular religion. Those are not, that's not prosecutable speech here in this country, whereas it could be in Europe or Canada. Holocaust denial is often the example that is given and has come into the news recently because Facebook has just banned Holocaust denial, which is illegal in many parts of Europe and of course protected speech under the First Amendment here in this country. You know, where I think our standard is better, and I talk about this at length and dare to speak, is in that, you know, really what you're doing when you offer that greater latitude is just affording the government more power to police speech. And you really have to think about whose power uh, that's who, whose power that becomes. Yeah, I think when when people consider the advisability of broader restrictions on hateful speech, you know, who do they imagine sort of doing the line drawing? Who's going to decide whether we're having a legitimate argument about the Israel-Palestine conflict or whether, you know, it's become anti-Semitic or it's anti-Palestinian or it's anti-Arab or anti-Muslim? Who's going to make those decisions? And I think people sort of have in their minds you know, some magical combination of a Thurgood Marshall and a Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Barack Obama and, you know, this idealized vision of sages who would draw those lines sort of exactly as we would. But, you know, look at the Supreme Court, look at the Trump administration Justice Department and the judges that they have appointed across the country. These are, are in many cases, they're judges uh, who may be ideologically driven. They may have their own uh, biases and beliefs. And so if you give them that latitude, you have to accept that they're going to use it as they see fit. And I think the Trump administration is a very vivid uh, illustration of why that would be dangerous. You know, we know that if he could go further in punishing speech, he would punish the speech of his critics. He's already you know, tried to do that in many ways, tried to get books suppressed from publication. You know, the First Amendment has stood in his way. But if we were to pare it back, that's exactly what he would do. And so, you know, to me, that's a very potent illustration of why, uh, you know, a, a, an approach that would extend the controls of government over our landscape of speech is a dangerous one. Suzanne Nossel is our speaker today at the City Club Friday Forum. It's our annual meeting, and she's our annual meeting keynote. And every year we try to take a moment to really look at the state of free speech in America. If you have questions for her, please text them to 330-541-5794 or tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them into the program. Suzanne, I have so many things I want to ask you, but, um, but what are we to do? And what I mean by that is... What are non-governmental organizations who care about this supposed to do? And what should individual citizens who find that there is so much to there that the world of free speech, the world we have created in America is the discourse we have created is a, is challenging. And we don't always want to give a platform or give oxygen to voices we find detestable, no matter which side you're on. Um, so what's a patriotic, good, red-blooded American who loves the First Amendment to do? 
look, I really wrote the book for the the citizen, uh, not for First Amendment lawyers, uh, you know, not for people who have as their day job as I do the defense of free speech, but for people who are engaging in these issues over their dining tables or in classrooms or out in the streets as part of protests. And, you know, my hope is that this balance of principles, the idea of being conscientious, but also at the same time defending the right to voice unpopular speech, that they come together as sort of a, a set of ways in which you can vociferously defend free speech, but without compromising other liberal values. And when it comes to institutions, I think there is a special responsibility. I talk in the book about the duty of care that we have if we have a, a, a special platform. If you're a professor in front of a classroom, if you have your own talk show, you know, if you run the City Club uh, of Cleveland, as you do, yeah, there is a special responsibility in thinking about how you use your words, uh, how, uh, how, how you're respecting those who are in your audience. I also think it's extremely important, and I devote a chapter to the idea of defending the right to voice unpopular speech. And I think you know one of the things I worry about the most is that just that because of all of this fractiousness that we're retreating from a, a truly broad and encompassing range of ideas, that it's just become kind of too costly to buck the conventional wisdom, to book a speaker who might be controversial, to offer a platform to somebody who talks about sensitive topics in ways that not everybody agrees with. And I think it's extremely important whether you're a bookseller deciding what to carry uh, in your store, or you're an organization like PEN America, which I run, or like the City Club of Cleveland, that you do offer that breadth of ideas, that you do take the risk of creating a forum for somebody who is going to challenge your listeners and bring up ideas that they may not be entirely comfortable with. Because you know, if we don't do it, increasingly nobody will. We know that people are living within filter bubbles on social media. They're choosing what to uh, pay attention to, who to hear from. And you know, we have the power to introduce them to something that they might not necessarily choose or seek out themselves. And I, have, I think we have to use that responsibly. It doesn't mean we have to give a platform to you know, quacks or uh, supremacists, but I think there needs to be uh, room for a range of ideas. And that's something that you know, all of us, as we uh, operate within civil society, need to take seriously. Suzanne, also, I want to ask you as well both a, a question. I want to ask this on like sort of two levels at the same time, if possible, both a personal and a kind of professional philosophical level. But why is this so important to you? You know, for me, I've been involved in human rights work uh, for m most of my career, both within government and in the non-governmental sector. And to me, Free speech is the human right that underpins all others. So whether you want to advocate for climate justice or for women's rights or immigrants' rights or the right to health, if your right to free speech is compromised and impaired and you can't write letters, you can't post on social media, you can't go out into the streets and protest if it comes to that, then your ability to advance all these other social goods is compromised. And so, you know, to me, it's very fundamental. And I have become concerned that we're losing our footing. You know, when you talk to Americans about 
free speech, they all reflexively think of the First Amendment and they sort of think of courts and lawyers and uh, famous Supreme Court cases. And there's a sense that, you know, that's all in hand, that we're in relatively good shape. And yet, you know, if you ask them about what's happening on their campus or their conversation with their grandchildren, you know, actually they'll tell you there, there's an enormous amount that people are afraid to say, or that they're getting into frequent controversies over the bounds of re reasonable opinion and discourse. And so I think we're sort of missing something if we believe we can simply leave it to the courts and the lawyers to defend our free speech rights. I think we have to kind of rekindle for ourselves as a citizenry a commitment to these values and an understanding of how as we become, which I, you know, I think we are becoming and we must become a more inclusive, equal, diverse society. We're definitely becoming more diverse. And I think we're now reckoning in serious ways with what that means and what how we become a less racist society. And as we do that, I think it's extremely important that we not lose sight of the role of free speech as a catalyst for, for uh, progress. As I said, we're with Suzanne Nossel at the City Club Friday Forum. She's our annual meeting keynote speaker. And if you have a question for her, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. If you're on Twitter, you can tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it in. Suzanne Nossel, a question for you. Much of what you would seem to require assumes good faith all around and some basic principles of civil discourse and nonviolence. Does the absence of these complicate your ideas? You know, it absolutely does. I mean, I'm appealing to people who I think are reasonable, who are not, you know, out to seed bigotry uh, in our society, who are not spoiling for a violent fight. And I, you know, but I also think the more of us that can be mobilized around a set of reasoned principles that can allow you to express your opinion the better off we'll be and, and the greater chance we have of marginalizing those who would deliberately undermine that. So I worry about the situation right now where free speech, and I, I, I talk about this in the book, has become so politicized. And you have, you had Donald, Donald Trump Jr. at the Republican convention declaring that the Republicans are the party of free speech. And I think that's actually very dangerous because a, a rising generation of young people says, oh, well, that's not for me. You know, that's a conservative set, set of principles that has nothing to do with the struggles that I am waging for racial justice or climate justice. And so I think that's very dangerous and that we need to rally around these principles, whether you're on the right or the left, and uh, be better able to fend off those who willfully undermine them. Another question for you. Can you speak about how our laws currently seem to equate speech and money? Yes, I mean, that is a, a serious issue. And I think what the question is talking about is the vast protections that the Supreme Court has afforded to corporate speech in the context of campaign contributions, saying that limits on campaign contributions are unconstitutional because it's an infringement on the speech rights of corporations. And, you know, I think that has contributed to this sense that free speech is a conservative set of values, that it's a array uh, uh, of principles that wind up reinforcing the power inequities in our society and compounding inequality. And I think it's extremely important to address that in the context of our defense of free speech. I devote a chapter of the book uh, to the steps that we need to take to prevent free speech from reinforcing 
inequality and to amplify and elevate lesser heard voices. And I think part of that is campaign finance reform to make sure that more people have a say and can express themselves. I am somewhat heartened by the fact that over the last few years, we have seen this mass mobilization of campaign contributions and that you know, I think the average uh, donation size to Joe Biden's campaign with its huge coffers is $42. And so, you know, we have seen ordinary citizens exercise, you know, if, if, if campaign contributions, if you even indeed accept the, the Supreme Court's notion that campaign contributions constitute uh, a form of speech, we are seeing a lot of people speak out. Another question for you, Suzanne Nossel, CEO of Pan America and author of Dare to Speak. Um, how do you balance the right to free speech with the vast amount of disinformation now being disseminated? What do we lose when society starts to view mainstream media as biased? For example, many are enraged that the media won't report on Hunter Biden's emails. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important question. We did a report at PEN America in 2017 called Faking the News, and it was an analysis of fake news and disinformation as a threat to free expression, even though overwhelmingly the content in question is protected by the First Amendment. You know, you're allowed to lie and dissemble and you, you know, under most circumstances, you can hide your identity if you want to. That's not illegal. So, so much of this information is protected by the First Amendment. And yet when it floods the zone, it absolutely impairs free expression. It really goes to well, why do we protect free expression in the first place? And I, you know, that's actually the last chapter of the book. And I talk about, you know, why going back to ancient Greece, we have treasured free expression. And it's not just for its own sake. It's because we see it as a catalyst to get to the truth, uh, a way to ensure that the best ideas rise to the foreground if there's this kind of contested marketplace. Uh, as a, an enabler, an accelerant of social progress and all sorts of other societal goods. And when you have a, an information ecosystem that becomes overwhelmed with disinformation, that function of free speech is impaired. You know, you're not going to see the best ideas rise to the foreground because, you know, the people purveying them, you know, you think are your neighbors and they're actually back in Moscow. And so, you know, their reasoning holds no weight. and and. You know, I think what's particularly dangerous is this increasing sense that just people don't know what to believe. I mean, when President Trump was diagnosed with coronavirus, a lot of people in my feed sort of said, you know, is this a hoax? And that feeling is constant. You know, the Hunter Biden emails, you know, I, I don't know quite what to make of them. And I'm not sure if we will know, especially not in time for the election. You know, the social media companies have become substantially more aggressive than they were certainly in 2016 in trying to safeguard themselves from, you know, an incident, that disclosure in the New York Post, I would say, bore quite clear hallmarks of a disinformation operation. Uh, you know, the nature of the emails, the way that some of them were captioned, the metadata on them, uh, the, the fact that it was leaked out through the New York Post and Rudy Giuliani. So there were many earmarks of a disinformation operation, that doesn't necessarily mean the underlying emails aren't what they purport to be. But, you know, the question, well, why are they being disclosed uh, at this time, by whom and for what purpose? And I, th I think it is a positive thing that the platforms are becoming uh, much more in attentive to 
their role in this because their role, they're not just neutral platforms. It's not like this is just a bulletin board where you can tack up whatever you want and if, you know, people can walk by it or not. Their algorithms amplify and accelerate content and they push forward messages and they shape what we see and what we believe. And so the question becomes, how do they exercise that power responsibly? And I, I think what has been missing over the last week is a clear articulation of the standards by which they have kind of downgraded algorithmically those disclosures about Hunter Biden and whether they would do the same thing uh, when it came to if it came to a similar uh, disclosure in relation to the Trump uh, campaign or another conservative campaign. Because I think if they are seen as ideologically biased, you know, that has a whole lot of other boomerang effects. It intensifies the determination of some in Congress to regulate these platforms, you know, potentially uh, pushing the boundaries of the, uh, of the First Amendment. It, it pushes people into shadowy realms of the dark web where, you know, they can say nefarious things and we never know about them and that can be even more dangerous. So, it, you know, it's very tricky. I think uh, it was somewhat of a positive step that they attended to this some, so quickly, but we are still waiting for a full explanation of what they did and why and how those principles will apply to future incidents. So that's connected to another question we have from uh, a listener about kind of what your recommendations would be for social media platforms. And I might put the question a different way. If you were asked to testify before a congressional subcommittee on this, what would you advise them to do? Look, I think it's very complicated. I devote a couple of chapters in the book to it. And, you know, they're essentially almost uh, juxtaposed against one another. The first is uh, a, a set of cautionary notes about why we should be leery of giving these platforms unfettered discretion to police speech as they see fit. They're profit making entities. They have their own ideolo ideological predilections. When they moderate comp content, we've seen time and again that they sort of do it incompetently and there are all kinds of mistakes and there's no fail safes. They over rely on artificial intelligence. And so I don't think we should, uh, I think we need to be very careful. They're non-transparent uh, and we often don't know what's disappearing or why. You know, at the same time, we've all seen the weaponization of content online, whether it's disinformation, which we were just talking about, or online harassment or conspiracy theories or, or false information about COVID that could prolong the pandemic. And so I don't think that can be downplayed. My expectation, my full expectation is that content will become progressively more regulated in the years to come, both moderated by the companies themselves and uh, externally regulated by government. Europe is already far ahead of us on this, but I think in the, in the new year, in the new Congress, uh, th th that Washington is going to get serious about this as well. The demands are coming from user platform users, from advertisers, uh, and from regulators themselves who feel political pressure on this issue. What I think is extremely important from a free expression perspective is that as we become more aggressive in policing online content, we need far more reliable, accessible fail-safes for the inevitable false positive. So inevitably, you know, if Facebook is getting more uh, forward-leaning when it comes to expunging disinformation, there's going to be some stuff that they, that their algorithms or their uh, human moderators believe is disinformation that, you know, has the hallmarks that sort of triggers the alarm bells and yet is satire, is 
uh, you know, the legitimate uh, opinion from a political actor or a candidate for office, and that belongs on the platform by their own standards. And today, if that happens, you don't have much recourse. You know, you can file an appeal, but very often you'll hear nothing. Uh, and if you do get a, a response, it could be weeks or months after the fact when, you know, the impact of what you're saying is, uh, would have been in, in real time. And so I think what they need to do is create, I call it a global content defender. I, I envision it almost like a public defender, but so, uh, a service that would be available to people who believe that their expressive rights have been violated to be able to get someone, whether it's a, an advocate or attorney, on the line who can actually engage with the companies to uh, uh, get redress in real time to protect and, and uphold those expressive rights in an environment where I believe content is going to be far more regulated than it is today. That's a nifty idea, but do you think it's actually viable? You know, I think it could be. I mean, they have unlimited resources, so that's, you know, uh, that's not a hurdle. The Facebook is just in the process of ro rolling out this uh, content review board, which has a different function. It's really not looking at individual cases of every person who says, you know, wait, 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 my post has disappeared. Why is that? It's more, it's looking more at systemic issues and kind of like almost a, a kind of Supreme Court, a Facebook to review their decisions after the fact, but they put a lot of money into standing it up. They've enlisted a lot of experts and I think they could do something that would be accessible to the ordinary user. You know, other companies in, in other industries have customer service. If your credit card doesn't work, you can get someone from Visa on the line, uh, you know, when you're standing there at the point of sale at Costco to, you know, take off the hold that has come in because, you know, they think you're, you know, they, th they think there's some kind of fraud. Uh, it, you know, if you can prove you're you, they'll let it through. And, you know, Facebook and Twitter and the like have never had to offer any customer service because their users are not technically customers. The services are free. And yet they make so much money off of their user bases that I think their obligations should be seen as commensurate to these other uh, types of industries where that level of customer service, being able to get a human being on the line, uh, you know, is normal and natural. And, you know, a lot of these cases I think could be resolved pretty simply. You know, if they involve complex line drawing exercises about you know, what exactly the boundaries of hate speech are you know, in, in Myanmar, uh, you know, that might take a more involved review. But if it's just a mistake or something that you know, is clearly satirical uh, or clearly you know, just garden variety political expression, that you know, it should be possible to recognize that in real time uh, with the help of a trained person. We um, just received a question from our board president, Robin Minter Smyers, your friend um, as well. And uh, she, she writes, the City Club of Cleveland is home to many dedicated members, some of whom have belonged for decades. We've long strived to be nonpartisan and invite people from many different perspectives to the podium. We now also actively want to be, we now also want to be actively anti-racist. How should we be true to free speech and our other values when we invite speakers? I mean, it's a great question. It's great to uh, be here with Robin, who's uh, an old and dear friend. And I'm only sorry that I'm not in Cleveland and able to have dinner uh, with, with Robin tonight, because that would have been really special. But it's nice to be together virtually. Look, I think this is really one of the complex, you know, what you've fingered in your question is a really complex and important issue. You know, this impulse that we all have to be more affirmatively anti-racist, how does that square 
with still presenting a breadth of ideas. And I think it's extremely important, you know, whether you're the, the Cleveland Club or you're PEN America, we do a lot of public programming ourselves that we, you know, we don't have to present people who are bigoted, uh, you know, who have promulgated racist ideologies. I don't think anyone has to invite Charles Murray uh, to be a speaker on their campus or at their club or in their public programs. But I think it's important to find people who are asking tough questions. You know, there was a really interesting article, for example, in the New York Times the other day about the term white supremacy uh, and whether, you know, which is a term that, you know, from, from my perspective, what I liked about the article is that it, it, it put into words something that I had thought a lot about, but that's frankly hard to talk about, which is like sort of the idea that white supremacy can refer to everything from you know, Charlottesville marauders, uh, you know, murderous marauders to kind of a white legacy institution, like a college, uh, you know, let's say the University of Pennsylvania that, you know, was started by white people and populated by white people uh, for most of its history and so has that legacy. But if you use the term white supremacy to encompass that whole spectrum, you're lumping an awful lot together. And this article kind of parse that and there were uh, a number of black scholars and critics that were quoted who actually kind of reject this surging use of the term white supremacy and i you know i think that discussion like convening some of those thinkers together to unpack the word white supremacy the term white supremacy you know would be a really interesting way of upholding your mission to uh be anti-racist and to sort of probe the depths of how we become a less racist society, but without adhering to just kind of a doctrinaire set of views and, and showing that, you know, look, there's a spectrum of opinion, even when it comes to, you know, how we uh, describe this anti-racist uh, effort. Another question for you, Suzanne Nassel, have you considered all the good that these, quote, impediments to free speech have done for social justice. As a black person, cancel culture has given me a way to level the playing field between minorities and people in power. Censorship is not always a bad thing. Cancel culture has added a sense of accountability to free speech. You know, yes, and I think I think it's an important point. And I, you know, I have uh, in the book a discussion of the fact that there there's some circumstances where I absolutely agree. I think cancel canceling or calling out is perfectly legitimate and it can be quite ferocious and that's sometimes deserved you know if you're you're facing down overt racism i think you need to kind of punch back with a commensurate level of energy and potency and i'm not arguing for a, a measured kind of calm civilized response in every instance. I think there's some circumstances that warrant something different. And I also think, you know, the last few months have been a uh, outpouring of free speech. I mean, what we saw particularly out on the streets in the demonstrations that, you know, was a very uh, robust and vigor vigorous exercise of free speech rights. You know, when people's rights, protesters' rights were impaired by overly aggressive policing and kettling and attacks on journalists and reporters covering the protests. I think those protesters actually came to see, you know, what, wh why the First Amendment protections that they enjoy are so valuable and important. It's their right to be able to go out and make demands 
and force reform and you know, sit in outside of the precinct and demand change, uh, you know, push to get a particular officer or commander uh, off the force if, if that person uh, is no longer tenable in their role. And so, look, I think that my hope is that there is a recognition that what you're, I, th I believe what is really useful for those movements for social justice is not the censorship and not the restrictions on speech, but rather the, the right to speak out and the power to speak out and the means to speak out. And, you know, we're seeing right now, one thing I talk about in the book, in my the chapter about inequality is how unequal the, the access to the platforms for speech has been, whether it's journalism or publishing or who's on television, the barriers of exclusion that have reinforced inequities. And we're seeing some of that, you know, right now being taken down. I was just looking at, you know, who the LA Times is promoting and appointing, you know, and it's a very diverse group of editors that are now taking the reins there. There have been a number of high level appointments in publishing uh, that are bringing about change. And I think those are great strides toward the realization of free expression. And so, you know, my hope is that the, the movement for social justice will recognize that free speech ultimately uh, is a tool for them to use, not an impediment to what they're trying to achieve. Another question for you, Suzanne. Uh, your principles regarding free speech and its threats seem sound. Your examples sound as though they come from a left-wing perspective. Do you view the threat to free speech currently mainly from the right? I really think it's both. I mean, I think that they're uh, they're different, but I would say, you know, my one of my primary motivators in in, in writing this book, uh, as I mentioned, is really to try to speak to young people on the left who become alienated from the principle of free speech, and so that inflects the choice of some of the examples. I think on the right, at least insofar as young people, you know, they they are quite conscious of the ways in which their free speech rights can be impinged upon. And it's it's not easy to be a young conservative on campus right now. I mean, we did some work at the University of California at Berkeley uh, around the incidents a couple of years ago where you had these right-wing provocateurs, Milo Yiannopoulos, coming to campus and creating a lot of disturbance with a message that was anti-immigrant and misogynist and racist and, you know, that attracted a, a, a a uh, very potent uh, reaction and, and set of protests and, and the university first shut him down and then allowed him to come back. And when we had a, a sort of sit down with some of the stakeholders, the young conservatives on campus said, you know, the reason they did that uh, and they invited him uh, was that they feel kind of edged out on that very liberal campus. It's hard for them to find faculty advisors for their clubs. They can't book rooms for their events because you need to get a, an academic department to be willing to be a co-sponsor. And I think this really goes to the obligation of institutions to take affirmative steps to embrace a range of ideologies and viewpoints. I, I honestly sort of believe if the college Republicans at Cal Berkeley 
had felt a bit more welcomed and there, there was a bit more space for them on campus, they would have continued with what with what they had done before that, which is sort of inviting state senators uh, and, and local legislators to come to speak to interested students instead of trying to take over you know, the whole campus common with, uh, you know, a, f- a firebrand speaker the way they did. The, that uh, You bring up that example, and in the book you also pair that with the example of Richard Spencer speaking at the University of Florida. And I wonder if you could remind us um, how the university responded. Yeah, look, it, you know, we as we analyzed these incidents here at Penn, came around to the idea that actually when you have a Milo Yiannopoulos or a Richard Spencer who has been invited to campus, as in the case of Milo, you know, the college Republicans were sort of entitled to invite him. Uh, and Richard Spencer in Florida, he rented a hall that's open to anybody to rent. They're both public universities. So they couldn't shut it down. And what we concluded is that actually being shut down is exactly what these provocateurs wanted. That yeah, there was nothing better for Milo than the headline of being uh, shut out of the uh, of Cal Berkeley. His First Amendment rights were violated. Uh, he could grandstand. He could go back to his supporters for donations. He could file, you know, a lawsuit uh, and probably win it because he's taking on a, a public university. And so, our perspective is that the much better approach is really the one that the University of Florida. Uh, took when Richard Spencer booked an auditorium, which is to say, okay, you know, you have your event, you're, you know, you're a citizen, you're entitled to use this auditorium, uh, no matter your viewpoint, but we absolutely and fundamentally reject your message. We're going to rally the campus around an alternative message, gators, not haters, was their hashtag. You know, we're going to allow counter protests to go forward in a organized kind of peaceful way where uh, we, we're limiting the risk of violence. And you know that took the wind out of Spencer's sails. He didn't have a big audience. He didn't get the publicity of a mega showdown. A big, uh, he wasn't able to say he was shut down. He gave his speech and you know that was kind of the end of it. I think actually the universities over time kind of wised up and, and have taken this approach. And that's why we've seen those kind of provocateur tours sort of died down over the last couple of years. Suzanne Nossel is the CEO of PEN America. She's the author of Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. She's been our uh, our keynote speaker for our City Club Friday Forum, our, which is also our annual meeting. Suzanne Nossel, I want to thank you so much for being a part of this today and for the your contributions to really a vast literature on free speech and, and the case for free speech. And I want to also point out that there's at least you know, 10 principles that we didn't, that we didn't get to. (laughs) Everything. I know there's a lot to say when you talk about free speech. And I, I, one of my premises is that sort of, if you leave out any of it, people are going to accuse you of overlooking uh, something really important. So it's important to put it all together, but I really appreciate the chance to be here with you and with Robin and the community in Cleveland. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for being a part of it. This forum today was our Samuel O. Friedlander Memorial Forum on Free Speech. Mr. Friedlander was a member of the City Club for most of his life, serving as president in 1962 during our 50th year. His daughter, Nina Friedlander Gibbons, was one of the first women to become a member of the City Club and served on the board in the 70s, and she is still an active member today. 
Thanks to also to our members, sponsors, and donors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more and join them at cityclub.org slash thank you. We just added a new form to our schedule for Monday night, actually. You should check it out. A conversation about tech, racial justice, and the youth vote with Dr. Cornell West, Mutale Ninkande of AI for the People, Shakira Diaz of, Alliance for, of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, and local advocate Angela Woodson. Next Friday, October 30th, we'll talk with local author David Giffels about his book, Barnstorming Ohio to Understand America. Also, in September, we launched a new video series called Democracy Unchained. Our sixth episode was released last night. We look at combating the influence of money in politics with Zephyr Teachout of Fordham University, former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold, author and attorney Chi Sun Lee, and Stephen Heinz, president and CEO of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, along with many others. You can find out more and check out the episodes at democracyunchained.io. That's democracyunchained.io. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Please wash your hands, keep your distance, and wear a mask. And thank you for voting. And finally, stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.